Ibrahim al-Husseini was born in Jordan and was raised in Saudi Arabia by parents who are Palestinian refugees. He immigrated to the United States in the 1990s to attend college at the University of Washington, and currently he resides in Los Angeles, California. Ibrahim al-Husseini is a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, and environmentalist. He is the founder and CEO of FullCycle, an investment company accelerating the deployment of climate-restoring technologies. Al-Husseini is also the founder and managing partner of the Husseini Group. Brahim Al-Husseini, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Mia. So you're a self-made entrepreneur, a long-time impact investor. What drew you to founding Full Cycle? It's, it's, tell us a little bit about that path. That question, I can pick any moment in time in my life and start there and move forward because, you know, obviously everything that we go through informs who we are and the decisions that we make. So I guess uh, for the sake of the listener and for the sake of transparency and, you know, for everyone's edification, it was partially, you know, when you balance the... um, nurture and nature part of the equation. For me, um, the nurture part was growing up as a son of refugees in a host nation that was kind enough to take us in, but also um, I felt acutely felt um, the fact that we were second-class citizens. The gift of that, right, because everything in the world sometimes can be a blessing and a curse, depending on how you look at it. The blessing part was it, it made me see the world with a different set of eyes. Like I wasn't blinded by privilege or lack of of experience of, you know, injustice. So then when when you grew up that way, it informs how you see the world and you get to see um, the connection between everything a little stronger than perhaps somebody who's had a more traditional linear life. But, the reason why I founded Full Cycle is because climate timelines require a new model. Like you can't use existing financial models to meet climate timelines. You need a you need to build a new model that takes into account the fact that we're 40 years late to the problem and we need to condense the time frame of which we roll out low carbon infrastructure around the world. And without that, you know, the without and the new models, really, we're not going to meet the temperature goals that we're setting for us as a civilization. But you know, somewhere between that refugee son of refugee kids and full cycle, there's also a journey of an entrepreneur that you mentioned. You know, I I was very intrigued and fell in love with the vision of America, a place where people can come from anywhere in the world and be treated and rewarded based on their merits. And, you know, it's not, obviously America is is a great model. It's not a perfect model. It's not like I wasn't, uh, I was treated equally. I was, you know, I was still um, being, uh, growing up with a name like Ibrahim al-Husseini, you know, there was prejudice, you know, there was even after 9-11, one time I got sent to the back of the plane by a captain who was uncomfortable flying with somebody like my name being that close to the front of the cockpit. So, you know, this, so that was difficult, but still the country, you know, is a, an amazing place and is constantly evolving and pursuing, hopefully, uh, a, a society that is equal and, uh, and a true meritocracy. 
But so I moved here. I started a business out of my college dorm room. That business took off. I uh, had a knack for entrepreneurism. I sold that business for a substantial sum of money and started another business a year later, did even better on that one and uh, got into the dot-com world. This is now late 90s. And, you know, the crash actually, uh, the dot-com crash stopped us from raising more capital. It wasn't, you know, the, the business was actually successful and profitable, even at least some quarters were. But um, my investors wouldn't put up more capital. And it was funny because the, you know, some of the investors even said things like, oh, this internet, it must just be uh, a fad. So, uh, you know, and that's why they never invested again. So anyway, I cratered the company and I just took the proceeds from my entrepreneurial activities and started a family office and started to invest in general technology. And the reason why I got into climate is because I was a scuba diver. I grew up in Jeddah, which is on the Red Sea. So my parents had a home there. So I'd go and I'd scuba dive in the Red Sea time and time again as I visit my family. And it really opened my eyes to the degradation of the quality of marine life that human civilization was generating. Because every time I'd go to the same spot, it would be materially degraded. You know, so what started off a decade before as completely lush and colorful and full of life, a decade later was barren, gray, and full of plastic, and it broke my heart, and it actually made me wonder, what's the point of accumulating all this wealth on a planet that's dying, you know? So, you know, and technically, it really is the biosphere that was dying and that we were killing because we were taking the life support system of this closed sphere in the middle of space for granted. It was, you know, the, it's like, it's, we don't realize what a rarity life is in the universe, let alone these tens of millions of examples of multi-celled organisms that inhabit our planet that make it this breathtaking utopia that it is. And instead of cherishing it and protecting it, we take it for granted and we, you know, use up its resources and we, uh, we don't reconcile its carbon math. So, you know, what I did after that scuba diving trip is I went back home to Los Angeles. I hired every climatologist, oceanographer, <laughs> um, any PhD in that domain that's willing to take my money. I had them come and educate me and turn my home into climate university in 2003 and realized that, okay, from now on, I was going to direct my investment capital towards clean tech because we needed technology to help us reconcile the math between our human civilization and the capacities of this finite planet that we live on. You know, because we were all we were doing is just borrowing capacity from the future, and that math was starting to catch up with us. And far be it from me not to play my role and my responsibility in stemming that tide and changing the trajectory of where we were going. So I spent a decade doing investments in that domain. In 2013, I launched the first full cycle fund uh, and then learned through that even more and then launched Full Cycle Climate Partners, which is the current fund that is you know, purpose-built to address climate change from the private sector 
in a very nice risk-adjusted return profile so we can aggregate enough capital to actually move the needle on the problem because it's a massive Herculean task ahead of us. And, you know, like small funds are just not going to be able to move the needle to the extent that we need to. So we need models that create that risk-adjusted return such that big institutional capital can start flowing to these solutions in a way that works for their mandates as well. You've been at it for a while, and and also it's a smart solution because as we're seeing now, you know these big oil companies that we thought were the uh, investments in wind and solar. It's smarter, it's cheaper. I mean, it's almost like it's counterintuitive to, uh, to invest in any of the old uh, energy sources. Yeah, correct. Um, it's you know, and energy is part of the problem. It's not all the problem. You know, there's a you know, climate change is a systemic problem, and it's. Uh, so first thing, it's important to understand that um, you know, the, the discrepancy between what we produce as a civilization and what the earth can absorb in greenhouse gas emissions is primarily generated from the big systems that are out of sight to us. You know, it's the stuff that happens, hey, there's, it's like the magic boxes that live somewhere that when we flip the switch on our on our wall, light shows up, or we turn the faucet and hot water arrives, or we throw a, a used tissue away and somehow it disappears as if there's something called away in a closed sphere. You know, obviously there's no such thing as away. So um, all of this has to go somewhere. So, you know, the, you know, like I'll give you an example, you know, 70% of the world uses open pits as a way to dispose of garbage. Now, what happens to the garbage in these open pits? Well, it biodegrades, which is a word that we like. Well, biodegradation means it breaks down into methane and CO2 and goes up into the atmosphere and turns into a toxic sludge called leachate and goes into our groundwater. So unless you produce sealed or sanitary landfills, or you uh, use sealed or sanitary landfills, then you're going to have this issue but even sealed sanitary landfills are also breaking down. Like NASA flew a satellite over the state of California to look for leaks in the natural gas infrastructure pipeline, and they found three and they fixed them. But to their shock and horror, 41% of the fugitive methane coming from our state was coming from our so-called sealed and sanitary landfills. And methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2, it's 86 times more heat trapping in the first 20 years of the molecule's existence. So that's why one of the differentiators for full cycle, for example, is we focus, we actually prioritize where we put our money based on molecules, which is interesting. Like a lot of people um, focus on verticals or on industries. We focus on molecules because we are a true climate fund. So if you're a true climate fund and you know that 1% of the volume of atmospheric greenhouse gases are responsible for 53% of the warming, you know that if you address that 1%, you're getting the biggest climate bang for the buck than if you um, uh, address the 99% the of the other, which was responsible for 57% of the warming. So it's a, you know, things like nitrous oxide, which is 350 times more heat trapping than CO2, refrigerants that are 13,000 times more heat trapping than CO2. And there's the added benefit when you focus on methane and nitrous oxide and all these other what's called short-lived climate pollutants. Um, you benefit crop yield 
because methane suppresses crop yield, you also benefit human health because I'm sure you've heard 25% of all the kids in New Delhi, for example, grow up with respiratory issues because they're breathing nitrous oxide every day. CO2 in the atmosphere, on the other hand, we can inhale and exhale without much harm to our systems. We're evolved to do that. So, you know, this, it's a very nuanced, thoughtful approach that, you know, came out of being in the space for 17 years. I like that it's so thought through and that you merge your integrity and civic responsibility while also giving return to your investors, which is just so nice for, for all those things to be covered. And I know I can't believe when I read the statistics that the major cause of death, cause of death in the world, 8 million annually now is to do with pollution. I mean, I just can't, it boggles the mind. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 it's, and there's a reason why the word climate justice or the phrase climate justice has emerged because those the numbers you hear about are primarily people who are underprivileged you know people who need to who who literally sometimes have to use a tire a used tire as the source of fuel to cook their food and they do that indoors and they have to breathe that you know people who uh, in the U.S., for example, all of the heavy industry was is historically and even lately being pushed into low-income neighborhood because the rich neighborhoods, who of course end up primarily being people of color, you know, they they don't have as much political power as rich white neighborhoods. So everything gets pushed off into the poor neighborhoods, um, and those people end up with 31% more asthma cases, et cetera, et cetera, and all the statistics you read about. Fortunately, we live now in the information age and everything is, we're upgrading our understanding and upgrading our narratives. And we're starting to call out these injustices everywhere we see them because the world is now growing up and maturing in such a way where we're no longer thinking of everything as a win-lose situation. So it's not a zero-sum game. Like we can all win together. A world that works for everyone is a world that works for everyone. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that and it's possible. So we're starting to be able to imagine that world and work toward, towards that world. I'm just so glad that the world is waking up. We hear it from young people. And, and soon, uh, one of our university team members, I know he, he's dying to ask you some questions as well. And um, Justin Hayes, who works for the Saudi Central Bank, I'm sure he has some questions about some of those really tangible and very um, fascinating market-based solutions. As you say, they're market-ready. But yes, I'm glad that we're thinking now about the future because if this current pandemic has shown us, you know, we haven't, we're not really prepared for catastrophes. And so we do have to look down down the line it's it's not that far away tell us a little bit about some of those uh, market-based solutions i've just been enjoying exploring them yeah happy to happy to so we invest based on four criteria the first criteria is um we like, when when you have a problem that you're 40 years late to addressing you need to front load the solutions right especially when it's something that builds upon itself like heat. So if you have global warming and you're picking technologies that are going to help abate heating cycles over a hundred year period, uh, obviously if you have options to 
address heating in 20 years, that would make more sense because if you, you know, the more heat there is uh, in the front of the equation, the more ice is going to melt, more glaciers will recede, which will obviously expose more ocean and more land to the sunlight, which will allow it to absorb more heat. Because the reason why we care so much about ice is because it reflects sunlight back into space instead of absorbing it as heat in the earth. So, you know, the like the the more short term we look, the more we prioritize the technologies and their capacities, the more we can slow down the warming cycle because warming begets more warming. So the first thing we do is we prioritize, right? Like if, you know, so the prioritization is which, like which technology can produce the highest climate return on investment in the first 20 years. And our minimum threshold is one gigaton or more of carbon abatement capacity. Everything is calculated against carbon because it's the most prominent greenhouse gas. So even though we don't invest to abate CO2 uh, particularly, it's always you know, compared against CO2. They're called CO2 equivalents. So uh, a gigaton is about 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And the discrepancy between what we produce as a civilization, humanity, and what the Earth can absorb is about 52 gigatons. So every one of our technologies is designed to abate a minimum of 1 50th of the problem. And some of them can do two, three, or four fiftieth of the problem. So that's the first criteria. The second criteria is like you said, they have to be market ready. Why is because if the fire is already in your backyard, you don't go invent firefighting technology. It's too late for that. You have to accelerate the rollout of buckets and hoses because buckets and hoses are ready technology and they work and we know that they work and they put out fires. So let's get as many buckets and as many hoses out into the world as possible. Now, thankfully our technology is much more sophisticated than that. So we're not saying it has to be something so simple but we don't care if it's simple, even better. If it's cheap, even better. The point is uh, as long as it meets certain uh, risk adjusted return thresholds and climate thresholds, our job is to accelerate its deployment worldwide. And our third criteria is that these technology companies come with a deep list of projects that we can invest in worldwide, because we're not just equity holders. We actually invest in projects as well. What a project is, it's an example of that technology in the real world. So if it's a power project, it's the local, power project in your municipality. So we would own that. And the reason why we would invest in it so we can accelerate the rollout of that technology in the real world, because that's where it matters. For example, I was an early investor in Tesla. Tesla is a 17, 17 plus year old company. And if you live in a rich city like Berlin and San Francisco, you'd think that everybody in the world is only buying Teslas. That's not true. 17 years later, less than one half of 1% of all the cars on the road are not are EVs, not just Teslas. So it takes a long time for things to actually penetrate the market. This is not an app we're talking about. You know, apps can go from obscurity into being downloaded tens of millions of times, 
you know, in weeks sometimes. But, you know, the when you're talking about infrastructure tech, first of all, that stuff takes a long time to commercialize, decades. That's why the venture model doesn't work for climate tech, because, you know, venture investing in early things, which some, some solutions we need, we don't have answers to, so we need venture capital to find those solutions for us. But in general, that is not the right model for climate tech, because it's a much bigger capex for these projects, and it takes decades to commercialize infrastructure, municipal scale, industrial scale technologies. Uh, the fourth criteria for us is that the, at the project level, we have to produce a minimum IRR that's in the double digits with long offtake agreements for our investors. So they basically are getting a nice double digit annuity type investment for their money and they're very comfortable deploying a lot of capital into it instead of sprinkles of capital for quote unquote impact here and there. You know, we want this to be, we want to become the Blackstone of the low carbon economy. We have Sinova, we're not recycling all of our plastics. So there's a chemical option, chemical recycling, indoor farming. For a long time, you know, maybe some of your listeners have heard this phrase before, circular economy. What circular economy means is there's no more waste. Just like nature, you know, before human beings showed up on the scene on planet Earth, you know, there was, we were in a perfect closed loop system. We produced 100 gigatons of CO2 and CO2 equivalents, you know, in fall and winter, and then in spring, the, earth, the biosphere would suck those back. And that was a closed loop system. So that's what we want to mimic. We want to mimic nature. Now, for a long time, you know, we would produce waste and either bury it into the ground, burn it, or throw it into the ocean. Obviously, that's not a solution, and it caught up to us. The plus, you know, waste is a resource. It's just you know, it's just matter turned into other matter. So which is what, you know, nature does. It takes the waste from one system and uses it as the food of the next system and continues in this closed loop in perpetuity. So there have been solutions that just haven't been commercially viable as a six continent solution. And they always have like these little asterisks to them, like, oh, this can take plastic and turn it into jet fuel. Yes, but it has to be a very clean uh, you know, very homogeneous type of plastic, and the economics don't work without subsidies, and, 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 you know, the, so there's a green premium on it, and like, so it, it's not a six continent solution, it's what we call a vanity project. It's something for an airline to say, hey, I buy green fuel. It's something for, you know, rich cities to say, hey, our trash goes to this magical solution. But you know, climate change is a global problem, not a local problem. You know, our goal isn't to just help mayors win re-elections and companies you know, greenwash their uh, carbon footprint. Um, you know, our goal is to become harmonious with the rest of the natural world, just like every other species. So this technology out of, invented out of the Netherlands is a repurposed technology from the oil and gas industry that allows us to take dirty hydrocarbon streams of waste. So whether that hydrocarbon looks is a banana peel, a piece of paper, or a plastic uh, jar of peanut butter with peanut butter still inside it, you know, next to a ketchup bottle with ketchup still inside it and the sticker still on it, all of it, 
can be turned into the building blocks of plastic in a perpetual molecular circularity at economics that work as well for Jakarta and, and Cairo and Jeddah and Kinshasa and Berlin and San Francisco instead of just for rich cities like Copenhagen, for example. So it's truly a global six continent solution, which is what we want. And like I said earlier, garbage is one of the biggest producers of methane in the world. 10 years ago, we didn't even talk about waste as a climate problem. Now we know what a massive climate problem it is because this is a nascent space and the narratives and understanding of it are evolving. And now the business community is getting involved. It's not just the scientists and the NGOs standing on the rooftop screaming. Now everybody's involved now that it's lucrative. <laughs> and that's not, by the way, why we got involved. We got involved way before even the nomenclature was invented, before words like impact investing and clean technology and low carbon economy and all this stuff was even being used because you know we're a team of people who come together who primarily want to like selfishly want to live in a world that is healthy and beautiful and want our kids and your kids to live in a world that's healthy and beautiful why not and technologies evolve in such a way that we can get there you know another technology that we don't think about is food you know like food is one of the biggest biggest producers of emissions in the world. You know, the fertilizer is, you know, we overuse fertilizer everywhere. That turns into nitrous oxide, um, you know, and obviously we know all the other pieces of the equation. Food gets shipped all over the world, you know, by plane a lot, and that has a massive carbon footprint. Most people don't, can't fathom how much of a carbon footprint a plane has. And I'm sorry to tell, to say this statistic because I don't want to discourage anybody from being a vegan, we should all become vegans or at least eat less meat as much as possible. And I don't mean to be a hypocrite. I eat meat from time to time as well. But, you know, one flight from LA to London and back is the equivalent, carbon equivalent of going vegan for six years. So shipping is a massive carbon, uh, is a very carbon dense activity. So we found the technology that allows us to grow food locally and have one fifth, fifth the waste of traditional transportation method, uh, methods, use recycle 90% of the water, not use pesticides at all, and use exactly the amount of fertilizer needed to grow the crops and harvest them four times a year. And, and it can work in any climate. So even in the Saudi desert, it could work. Even in the Greenland tundra, it can work. And the energy consumption that it uses is so such is so record-breaking compared to any other uh, controlled environment agriculture play that their prices compete at every level. There's no green premium for this produce. And because of the form factor of the containers it comes in, it's not just for lettuces. You can grow a huge variety of crops inside these controlled environments. So you can solve the majority of our produce needs, keep them local, optimize for phytonutrients and for taste, not just for transportation. For a long time, our food is optimized for transportation because it has to sit in the belly of a ship <laughs> for three weeks before it gets to us or in the belly of a plane and then sit on the shelf 
uh, at the supermarket, all of that starts going away when we find the right nexus of commercial viability and technological uh, capability. Well, that's very exciting. And I think uh, Daniel wants to come in and maybe Justin too late uh, with some a question uh, on that point. Hi, Daniel. Yeah, so, hi. Um, I wanted to ask you, me personally, COVID-19 showed me that we live in a globalized world and we're not isolated countries. But how do you get governments to act like we're, we're all in this together when a lot of them are working uh, and by themselves or isolation. Um, for example, how do you get the US to work with China? How do you get the Middle East to come together and, and agree on policy to advance our technology and our implementation of everything? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, I don't really, um, I don't really know the answer. You know, I'm obviously not a government expert. Um, you know, what I'm using is I'm using, <laughs> I'm using the tried and true method of greed to solve our problems. You know, the it, I want to make the life of asset allocators at every scale to be really easy. If you know they they get they have their mandates, whether they happen to be a pension fund, an endowment, a ultra high net worth individual, a family office, a sovereign wealth fund, they all want to grow their assets under management. And I want to help them do that in the right risk-adjusted return for their pool of capital. And that's what I'm focused on. If we have models of success, we have models of success of people actually forgoing these old narratives of like, you know, you know, me against you, you know, they again, like if we if we just start adopting more models of cooperation, the world will become a lot better place. Because we do, you're, I'm, I'm with you, we spend a lot of time and it makes us very unproductive to think about things from the viewpoint of nation states. Because climate change doesn't know borders. Doesn't, pollution doesn't stop at some fictitious line in the sand that some human beings drew that says, this is my, this is my border, you stay on that side. Um, and that's gonna become very evident with climate migration. You know, we're gonna basically have two options. We're either going to quickly make sure that people have food and water and jobs in their own country and continue to be able to deal with massive heat, you know, because most of the world, remember, doesn't have air conditioning. The air conditioning has a massive carbon footprint. Um, we either do that or there's going to be mass climate migration in the hundreds of millions. And we all know that the EU almost fell apart because of 3 million Iraqi and Syrian uh, immigrants, or I guess the migrants from the, um, you know, from the Syrian and Iraq war, which actually the Syrian civil war was originally a climate issue because of a 14 year drought. So you can look that up, it's documented. So, um, so, I think, you know, unfortunately, I mean, human beings have a really bad habit of waiting till things get really painful before they evolve. And, you know, so, so climate calamities are going to continue. And as they become more painful, more governments are going to start cooperating and competing less because their own sovereignty, survivability, economy, you know, 
government stability are all going to be dependent on it. We're in a new era. I mean, human civilization only got to this point because of 12,000 years of climate stability called the Holocene era. So now we're moving into the Anthropocene, which is the age of humans, uh, which is basically the disruption of that stability that is going to come back and bite us in the tush. So hopefully governments, <laughs> because of their self-interest, will start cooperating more. But great question. Uh, yes, and I think that governments are, we've just seen a, you know, a, a ruling in uh, Germany with uh, the high court uh, being taken, uh, young plaintiffs taking the, the high court, in, in, um, the decision on the high court in favor of its, uh, you know, climate uh, security is a human right. So this is, uh, we just had an interview earlier this week, and I, I think you know uh, Hans-Joseph Fell. Uh, so I... Uh, you know, listening to him and then seeing some of the market-based solutions you're offering. And then I, I start to believe what he was saying is that we can get this 100% renewable energy just, uh, you know, in 10 years. He, he feels it. He lives it. You know, if you've seen his house. So uh, he lives it and he thinks it's possible. And then I love to see the, the other solutions addressing all these other issues that you put forward. Uh, so I think it's possible. Yes, it's true. We are creatures of habit and we tend to think the worst can't happen until it happens. Yeah. What What is the bumper sticker? You know, when the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of change, people will change. It's something like that. Yeah. I, I, hope, I hope this, we don't have to learn this lesson that way because ultimately the, the suffering falls disproportionately on the people and the creatures who have contributed the least to the problem. It's not, you know, the poorest amongst us, women, girls, and, you know, all the other beings that inhabit the planet are the ones that are gonna suffer the most from climate change. You know, rich people, rich nation can buy electricity, people can move, they can pay more for water, they can pay more for food, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very un, like very unjust how that would all look because you know as you know the footprint from somebody living in the West their carbon footprint is I don't know something like five hundred times more than the carbon footprint of a Bangladeshi fisherman for example you know it's an insane multiple so even though the problem is being generated by the wealthy nations, the suffering will be, uh, the burden will be carried the most by the poorest and least contributive amongst us. So, you know, hopefully we don't have to wait till the pain uh, gets that acute. Yes, and uh, and they're just saying about the political solutions, I feel like I'm so glad in, in America and then around the world that there is this kind of movement and pressure and with the Biden administration, I believe the two trillion investment just shows a very strong, um, you know, signaling to to what we need to to do and I, I don't know how that works out but it just seems like it can't help but spark innovations and action now uh, I just feel like we're in this you you say you have this you give these you know talks where you're also an, an inspiring um, you know environmental communicator and educator and I believe you uh, like to end it with a, a quote by Carl Sagan that
You are by accident of fate alive at an absolutely critical moment in the history of our planet. Anything else you're interested in doing is not going to happen if you can't breathe the air and drink the water. Don't sit this one out. Do something uh, by the great Carl Sagan. Uh, and I think we're, we're in that critical moment now. I just feel a little sadness about thinking about, you know, Jimmy Carter <laughs> tried to, if he had had another, um, term you know i feel like that was a real lost opportunity but we have one now too yeah yeah i agree with you um i think i think joe biden the biden administration are doing a great job demonstrating climate leadership for the whole world and being very active and very sincere and very comprehensive you know if you look at the details of the uh, american jobs act and the rescue act they really address a lot of uh, areas of climate that are not just about the transition to renewable energy, of course that, but also climate injustice and inequity and all the things that we talked about on this call, which really tells me that they're listening. They're listening you know, to everybody. You know, I mean, uh, President Biden promised when he was running for election that he will be the president to all Americans, even the ones that disagree with him and he's really doing that. Like he is spending the money in red states as much as in blue states, creating green jobs, creating jobs training to get everybody ready for the green transition, you know, making sure that those jobs are resilient and high paying for everybody, blue collar, white collar. And, you know, that's that's a very thoughtful administration that's very inclusive. And it's too bad that we have, you know, destructive voices from the right whose job is just to obfuscate and make noise and try to confuse people with narratives that are not true and are just designed to try to thwart quote unquote his wins because you know to try to take away power like this is this is in the best interest of everyone so it's instance when somebody says hey, when when a president is chosen you know we we really need to get behind them if they're doing the right thing for the betterment of the whole nation. And that is something that I hope more and more Americans will wake up to so we can get there. Because if we don't pass this Americans Jobs Act, that makes sure that the, the new green revolution and all the technology innovation that is gonna come from it and the economic windfall that is gonna come from that is not based at least in large part in America, we're going to miss that opportunity. We already missed the 5G technology boom. We lost that to other countries. You know, our biggest innovation, last big innovation has been the internet. It's time for us to be a leader in a new technology. And that is low carbon infrastructure. And this new American Jobs Act has all the policies in it and all the investment in it to make sure that this country benefits from that transition. And if we don't, we're going to lose our dominant economic position in the world because this is one of the biggest investment opportunities in human history and will remain so for the next at least 30, 40 years. Brahim, your, uh, your comments are very heartening. Very often, my observation would be that things like uh, the Paris Accord or carbon credit system, the, uh, the international and NGO focus on regulations and not on commercial opportunities and job creation is an opportunity missed. I think they can be very inefficient. 
He adds a, an incredible amount of bureaucracy. They can be even uh, theoretical and not really practical in their outputs, in my view. Sustainability goals typically have a very long time to provide the necessary return on equity. But in the current low interest environment, the returns must be looking way more attractive than they have historically. I agree with you. And I also have a message, just in case anybody in the Biden administration is listening. Um, in there's a, you know, in, in the US, there is an opportunity where if you invest in underprivileged communities, mostly in real estate, um, you end up being able to forgo capital gains tax for about a decade. So if you generate capital gains tax and roll those proceeds into something called the Opportunity Zone area, which is an underprivileged part of the U.S., you can defer capital gains or eliminate them if you keep the investment uh, in the ground for 10 years. Um, if the Biden administration is recommending we increase capital gains uh, taxes, which I'm not opposed to, it would be very advantageous and interesting, and I'd like your thought about this too, Justin, to include a wider version of the Opportunity Zone. We can call it you know, the like some version of impact investing that's very specific that says that, hey, if I just made money on Apple shares or on some sort of private equity deal, you know, and I put that money into a solar farm or a wind farm or a waste to value plant or in, in even one of the many incubators that are, you know, producing the next climate tech innovation, then we can have the same treatment. This way we can realize a much faster transition to a low carbon economy instead of having it all siphoned through the government. This way, the you know, as long as they create very strict guidelines that says, hey, here are the approved investment categories and here are the details behind them, that'll create such a boom in the clean carbon rollout that maybe other countries will model. And this way it makes people who would have been very upset that their capital gains tax increased, you can offset that by saying, great, take your proceeds and put it in all this green infrastructure and leave it there for 10 years and you can withdraw the profits out of it without any capital gains. So I think that would be a nice amendment and a good idea. Do you think that UN sustainability goals are constrained financially or that there is simply a uh not sufficiently cohesive and aligned uh, around their purpose? I mean, for sure, global cohesion is a restraint because they're just headlines, right? Like they're saying, hey, these are areas that, that we think the world should direct its attention on. And it, I mean, it's been fantastic because it brought attention to them. And there's so many now they're, they're a commonplace mainstream uh, talking point that allows us to elevate our understanding of the of global problems and the narrative around them and thus actions surrounding them but there isn't enough of a concrete plan around them you know to implement that i've seen but it does you know it does have a very positive effect it's just not as directional as i would like them to be because it's, you know, which I understand why they would do that, because they want to leave the solutions up to governments and the private sector to figure out and just say, hey, here are the areas that need your attention.
but maybe somewhere in the middle such that people can address them again in a more prioritized fashion. Because we do have a prioritization issue in the world. Like when we have an existential threat, right? An existential threat, you know, it's you got to look at it like a building. You can't be decorating the 13th floor and if you don't build the foundation. First, you have to build the foundation and then build the first and second and third and fourth and 12th floor. Then you can build the 13th floor and worry, worry about decorating it. So there's a there's kind of a haphazard approach to solutions that's going on in the world where there's a, you know, people are falling in love with the idea of, you know, doing well by doing good. But the question is, is what needs to be addressed now compared to in a decade, compared to in two decades, compared to in a hundred years, that people don't have that direction. And that is a very critical prioritization that needs to happen. We take that into effect at full uh, into account at full cycle because we are not a haphazard good fund. We're not just solving whatever problems that happen to come at our desk. We're strictly prioritizing them based on what is going to build the foundation for Earth's inhabitability, future inhabitability, and then <laughs> once that is secure then we can start solving all the other problems that we need to, because without that one, all the other ones don't matter. It's like, it's like when I get approached as a personal investor a person, you know, um, and people come to me and say, hey, let's, let's uh, increase the efficiency of, or the sustainability of fishing practices in this village in Guatemala. You know, my response is let's make sure that we remove CO2 from the atmosphere that's ca causing enough ocean acidity, acidification, such that the marine, uh, the, the entire marine food chain is about to collapse one day from overfishing and from over acidification, because if the, the entire uh, marine food chain collapses, then those sustainability fishermen in Guatemala or fisherwomen in Guatemala are going to have no fish to fish for, whether sustainably or unsustainably. So again, Ibrahim, I really, uh, I think that's that's well put, um, and I agree with you. Commercial organizations, in my view, are better placed to prioritize and plan their investments so that they minimize their time to market and maximize their opportunity. Um, and on the second point, clearly, the timing for these types of opportunity couldn't be better with low-cost finance and the poor rate of return offered uh, by banks. So um, now, now is the time to move forward with these, these kind of ideas in a way that's both practical and viable commercially. As you think about the future, which seems to be ever present on your mind, and you think about education, climate change, and all these issues that you address with Full Cycle, what are things that you would like uh, young people, and I guess the, the general public, to know, preserve, and remember? Well, for young people, what I would like to say is, you know, a, don't despair. Don't give in to cynicism. Uh, I know that, you know, previous generations have threw a big party and continue to throw a party and are leaving you with the mess to clean up. But just know that more and more people are coming together to make sure that that mess is also cleaned up so you don't have to inherit it by yourself. And you also 
are in a moment in time where you have access to the most information, the most technology, the most positive, spirited counterparts all over the world who want to lock arms with you and realize a world that works for everyone and everything. So stay in action, stay positive, do not check out and give into cynicism. We can do this. You know, humanity is extremely, extremely capable and is extremely capable species and our ingenuity knows no limit. And this is our, yes, it's our biggest challenge to date, but we're up for the challenge and we can do it. And we want you to join us and we want you to be part of the solution. Uh, and we believe in you and we thank you for your patience and your participation. That's a wonderful message. And I think so many of them are on board, but what you provide and what you, what your investment uh, fund uh, helps bring into reality are real tangible solutions. And for right now, not like a you know, decades to come, but right now we can start working on some of them. And then also your message, I guess, for those who are holding on to the old ways or, you know, not evolving with the times, what is your message to them? You know, my message to you is, is if, if your self-interest depends somehow on keeping the status quo, just look in the mirror and see if this is if this is something that you can reconcile within yourself, you know, is it, is it okay that you benefit at the expense of everyone and everything else? Is that a way that you really feel like you are winning at life? If not, then reconsider what you're doing and, you know, just realize that we all live in this inextricably connected closed sphere in the middle of space, anything that harms one area harms every area. There is nobody who can escape dirty air, dirty water, dirty food, economic, political disruptions, etc. We're all in this together. So don't fool yourself by thinking somehow you're going to come out of this unscathed and having quote unquote won while everybody else loses. If you know, you continue to do what you're doing, we all lose you included. Well, that's a, a very uh, beautiful, uh, poignant, uh, you know, you're so full of uh, humanity. So I want, we want to thank you for your passion. And um, thank you, Ibrahim Al-Husseini and Full Cycle for all you're doing to help transform our high carbon present into a low carbon future. And for your example of merging your integrity and civic responsibility to help support sustainable market-based solutions to the most important issues of our time. Thank you for for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Daniel Sarudi. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcasts and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.